The Secret Church Podcast is a resource from Radical.net. In Secret Church 7, David Platt examines Scripture's teaching on angels, demons, and spiritual warfare. These topics often bring up a number of controversial questions. What about deliverance ministry? Can a Christian be demon-possessed? Should we try to bind demons? To answer these and other questions, this study points us back to God's Word so that we might rightly understand the supernatural aspects of the world God created and live accordingly. For the Secret Church 7 study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC7. This is Secret Church 7, Episode 1. Here's where we're going. Foundational truths. What I want to do is I want us to camp out on some foundational truths that are going to set the stage for everything else in the evening. And then we're going to split it up into these three categories. Like the title, angels. We're going to look at who are they? How are they organized? What do they do? How do they relate to us? Then demons. What are demons? Who is Satan? How do Satan and demons relate to God? How do Satan and demons relate to us? Then we'll go to spiritual warfare. And we're going to take three major periods in redemptive history. The Old Testament, picture of Christ in the Gospels, and then the church, the New Testament, the letters, the epistles. And we're going to look at spiritual warfare in those three facets of Scripture. And then we will conclude our night with controversial questions. What about deliverance ministry, casting demons out of people? Can a Christian be demon-possessed? Should we talk with demons, conversing, naming, binding demons? Can we inquire or acquire or inherit demons from other places or people? I thought that would be the most appropriate topic for around midnight tonight. So that's where we will be. And we will close out with two concluding challenges that have absolutely gripped me like I want to get to those now, but we're going to work our way there. So... Here we go, foundational truths. Just, to, just, some, just some making sure we're on the same page here with some foundational truths before we dive in. First, foundational truth. There is a spiritual world. There's a spiritual world. I wanna invite you to turn with me to 2 Kings chapter six. Now we're gonna to turn to some different passages, not, not really a ton of passages, but there are some places where, where I wanna make sure to draw your attention to certain scriptures. I've, tried to include as many scriptures as possible in the guide so that we don't have to spend too much time turning here and there. But I want you to see this story. Elisha was a prophet of God. We come in 2 Kings chapter 6. And in this text, he's described as the man of God. And I want you to see what's happening here. Look at 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 8. Follow along. Elisha's the man of God here, the prophet. Now, the king of Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel. The man of God, remember, is Elisha. Sent word to the king of Israel. Beware of passing that place because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God. And time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on guard in such places. So you see what's happening here. The king of Aram wants to take out the king of Israel and all his army. But God tells Elisha where the king of Aram's gonna be. And so the, Elisha says, hey, king of Israel, just, just so you know, the king of Aram's hiding out over here. Obviously, this did not make the king of Aram very happy. And so, verse 11 says, this enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded of them, will you not tell me which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? In other words, who's the rat here? 
None of us, my lord, the king, said one of his officers, but Elisha, the prophet who's in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. He knows everything about you, man. He knows all your plans. And so the king of Aram decides we need to take out Elisha. And so that's what happens. Verse 13, go find out where he is, the king ordered, so I can send men and capture him. Like Elisha wouldn't know. (laughs) The whole point. The report came back. He is in Dothan. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. So middle of the night, they get surrounding the city. They're surrounding the whole army, ready to take down Elisha. And then what happens? Verse 15, when the servant of the man of God, Elisha's servant, got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. He's panicking. The whole army's coming, about to take them down. So listen to what Elisha says to him. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now that's an interesting response. Put yourself in the servant's shoes at this point. Oh, okay. Those who are with us, too, are more than those who are with them. My army around the city. Now, the old man's good at prophecy, but math is not his subject. <laughs> So what happens? Elisha prayed, oh Lord, open his eyes so that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And all of a sudden, the servant was able to see that an entire army of the Lord was surrounding this army. And that indeed there were more with them than there were, more with us than there are with them. And so verse 18 says, as the enemy came down toward him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, strike these people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness as Elisha had asked. Elisha told them, this is not the road and this is not the city. Follow me and I will lead you to the man you are looking for. And he led them to Samaria. After they entered the city, Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men so they can see. Then the Lord opened their eyes and they looked. And there they were inside Samaria. When the king of Israel saw them, he asked Elisha, shall I kill them, my father? Shall I kill them? Do you see what just happened? Elisha led them directly to the king of Israel. Now the point of bringing that passage. I want to put that picture before you because I want us to realize how how alike we are to the servant of Elisha. We see so little. That's the point. There is a spiritual world. And brothers and sisters, there are a lot of things that are going on that we do not see. An invisible world that is just as real as the visible world, yet far more powerful. Just think of this. That there are vast numbers of angels, good and bad, all around us. Just kind of let that soak in. Angels, holy angels, that if we were to see them, we would be floored by their beauty. And 
evil angels, demons, that if we were to see them, we would shudder back in total horror. God, open our eyes to see spiritual world. Now, at this point, objections begin to pop up. Spiritual explanations are primitive. Don't you know science, technology, medicine have basically rendered belief in the spiritual world as erroneous? You say you believe in demons and angels? That's like saying you believe in dragons, elves, and the tooth fairy. Really, demons and angels in in a Western worldview, in our context in particular, if you cannot see it, feel it, touch it, smell it, then it is not there. We're blind to a spiritual world. And how can you explain that God controls thunder and lightning when we know meteorologists can predict that a week out? How can you say that there's there's a personal force of who, who tempts, a, a person who tempts people to sin, when we know that sin is just a product of our DNA and the social environment in which we live, and it can be predicted what we're going to do. How can you really believe in these kinds of things? At most, the spiritual world, angels and demons are looked at as religious fancy. This is one of the great parts of the Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis, classic book. When an elder demon is speaking to a younger demon and giving advice on how to deceive people. And listen to what he says. Wormwood, this is the elder demon speaking to the younger demon. I do not think you will have much difficulty in keeping the patient in the dark. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, just suggest to him a picture of something in red tights. And persuade him that since he can't believe in that, he therefore cannot believe in you. Modern culture has talked us out of not only thinking about demons and angels, but even talking about them without thinking, is this just a little out there? Are we just imagining this? Spiritual explanations are primitive. Spiritual realities are not pervasive. In other words, even if we acknowledge that there is a spiritual world, oftentimes we begin to think, well, that just deals with seances and Ouija boards and occult practices and this or that. Or maybe as a Christian, we think, well, now that happens in many third world contexts, overseas, over there, and we just can't grip the idea that there are spiritual forces all around us in middle-class America. And this is an extremely dangerous way to think to think that they are not pervasive, to ignore the fact that the conflict waging in the spiritual realm has huge effect on what we watch on TV and how we respond to what we see in a movie and how husbands you speak to your wife and how parents you speak to your children and how we carry our lives and spend our money. That has everything to do with the spiritual world. Even if we acknowledge there's a spiritual world in our context, we so disconnect it from the natural world that we think, well, they just don't have anything to do with each other and we don't see how the spiritual world infiltrates our politics and our business and our neighborhoods and our homes and everything we do. And we've actually exported this this distinction all around the world in the way we've done missions. Leslie Nubigen said that Christian missionaries have been one of the most secularizing forces in the entire world. We've gone into third world context and you know what we've told them? We've told them it's not spirits who make the crops grow, it's scientific agriculture. So we got fertilizers and fungicides and pesticides and hybrid seed and we showed them 
Their religion has nothing to do with agricultural. It belongs in the realm of science. What we should have said is this is a God-created and God-sustained world, and he has designed ways for this world to operate, and we experience the most, the best of his gifts in this world when we operate according to the way he has designed it. And so we seek him, and we, we work in the context of how he, as a perfect designer in this world, has made us. But we disconnected the two. And as a result, we see no need in our lives on a daily basis for the supernatural power of God. We even reduce sin to psychopathy and psychological problems that need to be dealt with in the context of social environments. And we miss out on, on the spiritual world around us. And then some even say spiritual powers are not prevalent in Scripture. And what I want to show you tonight in the Bible is that the there's an active, prevalent, pervasive spiritual world all over Scripture from the very beginning, Genesis 3, with the fall of man, to the middle with Jesus in Matthew 4, to the very end, Revelation chapter 20, when Satan is judged. Catch this. If you do not believe in the spiritual world, then you are denying the reality of the Bible. Even deeper, if you deny that there is a spiritual world around us, you are denying the truthfulness of Jesus Christ himself because Christ was inundated in the spiritual world from the very beginning. An angel announced his consummation as well as his birth. He was tempted by the devil, Matthew chapter four, Luke chapter four. He was served by angels after his temptation. He could have called down legions of angels from the cross. Angels were present at the tomb when the stone was rolled away. They were present when he ascended into heaven to undermine the reality of the spiritual world is to undermine the very reality of the birth, life, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ himself. So spiritualities are pervasive. We need to avoid two errors here. C.S. Lewis talked about it. There are two equal and opposite areas into our, which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or magician with the same delight. Error number one is empty rationalism either to deny the spiritual world as religious fancy or to compartmentalize it. And this is where we need to realize, particularly in this room, in this context, that we are far more secularistic, humanistic, and materialistic than we would like to think. And we tend toward this. Empty rationalism. The other extreme to avoid, though, is an excessive fanaticism. Yes, there are spiritual realities, but if we're not careful, we will overanalyze them and overreact to the spiritual world, causing all kinds of misunderstanding and misconception. I want to be point blank honest here. After studying this for months and preparing for tonight, I am convinced that there is all kinds of fiction, superstition, fantasy, nonsense, nuttiness, and downright heresy when it comes to ideas about spiritual warfare in Christian circles. And we need to be careful Yes, not to confine ourselves to an empty rationalism that ignores the spiritual world, but we also need to be careful not to indulge ourselves in excessive fanaticism. David Pallison wrote a great book on counseling as it relates to spiritual warfare. I wrote it, I've got it in the recommendations in the back. I want you to listen to what he said. I just want to read you a little excerpt. He said, some people really do see a demon behind every bush. Cynthia, a woman I counseled, once cast demons out of her toaster when it failed to work. 
More seriously, she and her husband, Andrew, had a remarkable and remarkably destructive way of arguing with each other. For the first five minutes, they warmed up with normal person-to-person bickering. But at a certain point, when the fighting turned nasty, they shifted gears and wheeled in heavier artillery. They would bind, rebuke, and attempt to cast out demons of anger, pride, and self-righteousness from each other. In Cynthia's words, I saw the demon looking out of his eyes, glittering and murderous. So I said, demon of anger, I bind your power in Jesus' name. Then I claimed the power of Jesus' blood as my cover from all my demonic assault coming through my husband. The result, he said, not only did Cynthia and Andrew reinforce their hostility, they trampled the name of Christ through the mud of their superstition, hostility, fear, and confusion. Needless to say, the real devil who aims to dishonor God and conform us to his evil ways could only be pleased at the personal and interpersonal wreckage he brought about in this situation. I want want us to study this very honestly tonight because I am convinced that there's a great deal of confusion in the church here and around the world regarding spiritual warfare. And we, we need to stay away from both of these two extremes, both of these errors. Foundational truth number one, there's a spiritual world. Number two, we are involved in a spiritual war. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. This is a war of conflicting kingdoms. We've already looked at this package, passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. The picture is there is a kingdom of God and a kingdom of Satan. Jesus talks about how his kingdom is not of this world in John 18. Ephesians 2 talks about the ruler of the kingdom of the air. There's a kingdom of God that coexists with the kingdom of darkness and it is not a peaceful coexistence. There's tension there. And history is the story of this tension. We need to realize that from the very beginning, the Bible, the very beginning of human history, it is a drama of war and peace and conflicting kingdoms from Genesis 3 on. And in the middle of pagan nations following after the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the God of this age, little g God, devil, God calls out a people to himself to be a light in the middle of darkness. And yet even the most bright lights among his people still fall. Abraham still deceives and lies. And Moses still struggles with unbelief and he dies. And Noah, who had faith in God when no one else did, still gets drunk and he dies. David, the man after God's own heart, commits adultery and organizes murder and he dies. And over and over and over again, you see the brightest lights among the people of God still infiltrated with darkness until we get to the perfect man. And he comes on the scene and there is no sin in him. And he conquers with his life. He conquers with his death. He conquers with his resurrection. He shows us the kingdom of light so that all who trust in him can be delivered from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light through him. But even those who trust in him still, still have a sinful nature that wars within them. And the conflict continues. And yes, there's coming a day when the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of Christ and he will reign forever. But at this moment, we find ourselves in war. It is a continual struggle. I just want you to think real quickly with me about how the New Testament pictures the Christian life as warfare. It is a war against sin, Hebrews chapter 12. 
and your struggle against sin. It's a war within our souls. First Peter 2, a war against your soul. Struggle against sin, a war within our souls. We struggle for our faith. Jude 3 talks about how we have to contend for our faith. We have to fight for it. We struggle for the gospel. Philippians chapter 1. Going through the same struggle you saw that I had in the gospel. 1 Timothy 6, Paul says, we fight the good fight. Paul comes to the end of his life and ministry and he writes in 2 Timothy, I have fought the good fight. That sums up my life. Thought. Kept the faith. He says to New Testament Christians in that same book, we are soldiers. Endure hardship like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. We are soldiers. The New Testament talks about how we have weapons. The weapons we fight with, not the weapons of this world. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, in the middle of that passage, Paul talks about weapons of righteousness in the right hand and the left. And then back in the Old Testament, this is a passage we're going to look at a little bit later. War is raging in the heavenlies. In this picture, Daniel's prayers are affecting an entire battle between angels that is going on in the heavenly realms. The point is, we are in wartime, not peacetime. We need to realize this. We are in wartime, not peacetime. This is why Paul says in Ephesians 6, kind of a passage we're going to come back to over and over and over again, our struggle, and this shocks me, Paul says our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not a physical struggle. And you think about what he had been through physically. He'd been stoned and beaten and harassed and abused and imprisoned and shipwrecked. If anybody knew this was a physical struggle, that's not what Paul says. He says that's not where the struggle is. Not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the authorities of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. This is a spiritual war. And what's going on in the spiritual realm is far deeper, far more meaningful, far more impactful than even what's going on in the physical world. Let the soak in. You have an opponent in this world that wants to wreck your marriage and wants to rob you of your purity. And wants to lead you to defame the name of the God who saved you. He wants to pull you down and destroy your soul. We are in wartime, not peacetime. There's no room to sit back and relax. Peacetime's coming, brothers and sisters, but it's not now. It's not now. Third truth. Basis, now this is huge. The basis for our understanding of this spiritual war is biblical. It's biblical. This is where we've got to decide an answer to this question. What is going to be our authority tonight as we think about angels, demons, and spiritual warfare? Fiction or fact? Are we going to be talking tonight about Frank Peretti or the Bible? Fiction or fact? Experience or exegesis? Don't get left behind on this. <laughs> I was like off the top of my head and that was fairly corny. I apologize. I apologize. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay. 
War time. Here we go. Experience or exegesis. We're not going to talk all night about what's going on over here and what's going on over here, what's going on over here. Experiences. Or are we going to look at what do we understand about Bible? Intuition or interpretation? What feels right to us or what God has declared to be right? And this is where we've got to decide, ladies and gentlemen, where is our court of appeal? This is one of the biggest challenges because God has worked and is working in different ways in different circumstances all around the world. And we have to account for that. But at the same time, if we do not have an objective standard of truth by which to evaluate all these different experiences, then we're going to be carried out in all kinds of ideas and falsehoods. This is where I'm convinced that so much of what passes for spiritual warfare in Christian conversations today is so outside of scripture and so based on experience that in the end, it's actually more pagan than it is biblical. And it's accommodating the occultic worldview that the devil is raging in. So where are we going to find our answers? Where's the basis of our discussion going to be? Remember, the Bible doesn't answer every question we may ask. Now, this is true in all kinds of questions we might have and circumstances we might face. And it's particularly true regarding spiritual warfare. How did Satan become evil? The Bible really doesn't answer that question. How did the demon-possessed in Scripture become demon-possessed? There's a lot of questions that we're going to see and questions that we have in the world today that the Bible does not answer. But the good news is that doesn't mean we're at a loss. God is not up in heaven saying, man, I wish I would have remembered if I'd have known they would be studying that that night and that I had those questions, I'd have put it in there. God's not saying that because this is the good news. Relax, the Bible does answer every question we need answered to live to the glory of God. It doesn't answer every question we ask, but it does answer everything we need to grow in Christ and to experience victory in this world. And this is key. I want, I want to put my cards on the table. I'm a Western Christian, born in the Western world with Western thinking. And I readily admit that I have got a lot to grow in my own Christian life. And I have limited experiences. I think I've traveled around the world a good bit, but I still have not seen a lot of the things, so many of the things that God is doing around the world. And there are a lot of different experiences. So admittedly, I'm at loss when it comes to experiences, but I want you to hear tonight that even if I had spent the last 50 years traveling around the world and experiencing every single possible thing, my goal tonight would still not be to share my experiences with you. My goal would be to share the truth of God's word with you because it is the measure by which we look at each of our experiences. And so the key is to camp out here and stick close to scripture and then bring scripture to bear on experiences, stories, accounts from around the world. The word is authoritative. This is so key. We are an experience-driven people. I'm convinced one of the most dangerous places to be is in a Christian small group Bible study. It's dangerous. Sit around, a few people with their Bibles open in their laps, all happy to be there. And leader says, Bob, why don't you read, read a verse? Bob reads the verse and the leader says, well, Bob, what does that mean to you? Bob says, well... I guess it means this to me. Mary on the other side, what does this mean to you? Well, I got something totally different out of that, Bob. This is what it means to me. Bill chimes in. He said, I, I was just thinking about how this text relates to how I relate to my dog. And yes, this is so meaningful. And then Jane chimes in. She says, I got something totally different out of it. And they're all excited. They walk away, say, 
Oh, what a great Bible study. The reality is they never studied the Bible. They studied each other the whole time. And there was nobody in the room that was standing up and saying, you know, Bob, Bill, Jane, Mary, it really doesn't matter what it means to you. I want to know what it means. <laughs> like, who wrote it? Paul? Well, let's ask Paul. Paul, what does this mean? They're walking away saying, look, we've learned so much about the Bible. They've learned nothing about the Bible. They've learned about themselves and they haven't learned about God. We're an experience-driven people. And so we've got to make sure to let the text be our starting point. What does it say? What does it mean? And then save our questions for later until we have looked at the text. Does that make sense? How are we going to approach the text then? And this is just an overview from a few secret churches ago, how to study the Bible. I just want to remind you there's a process when we come to the Bible of observation. We explore the text. We listen to the text. We listen thoughtfully, repeatedly. We're looking for different things, patiently, imaginatively, meditatively, purposefully. We, we, we talked about this at Secret Church. We listen to the text. Then we look at the text. We look for things the word emphasizes and repeats and connects and communicates. That's observation. We start there. What is the text saying? And then we move to interpretation. What does the text mean? Interpretation, we examine the context. In order to understand a text, we've got to see the context that surrounds it. We've got to travel to their world in order to see what the Bible is going to say to our world. We've got to start there. And so we consider the literary context because how truth is communicated in gospel narrative is very different than how truth is communicated in the Song of Solomon. Very big differences. Consider the literary context, the historical cultural context. Things that are going on in 2 Kings aren't the same things that are going on in Revelation. So we need to take that into consideration. We need to consider the theological context. Not just pick little words or verses here or there and bring it out and start to make all kinds of assumptions about, you can take Psalm 14 where it says there is no God and say, well, obviously scripture teaches there is no God. Just rip it out of its context. We've got to be careful not to do that. Principles to remember, we're examining the author's original intent. The Holy Spirit through a human author at a certain time at a certain place. A biblical text can never mean what it never meant. Can't just take it out and create some whole new meaning for it. We've got to see what's going on here. Context shapes our understanding of meaning. The rule of context is context rules. We've got to see the context. And this is where I want you to think about dangers to avoid, two particular dangers to avoid. Number one is fragmentation. And by that I mean isolating texts from their context. Now this is a danger even in the way this whole secret church booklet is designed. You got all these different texts from different places. We've gotta be really, really careful. Because if, if we're not, we'll take one verse from here in the Old Testament, one verse from the Gospels here, one verse from the Epistles here. We'll put them, line them up next to each other and we'll just connect all the dots, one to one to one to one, and think they're talking about the exact same thing at the exact same time in the exact same place, and we isolate text from their context. And we can do that and make the Bible say anything we want it to say. We've also got to avoid flattening, importing text from one context into the context of another text. I'll give you an example of that. Especially in spiritual warfare, oftentimes what people will do is they'll take Mark chapter five, story of the demon-possessed man, and then they'll import that whole story and what it's talking about when it comes to demon possession into Ephesians 6 and what Paul is talking about when it comes to spiritual warfare. And just assume that Paul's talking about exactly what's going on in Mark chapter 5 when the reality is there are some major differences. So we've got to avoid both of these dangers. 
And then observation, what does the text say? Interpretation, what does the text mean? And then application. We implement the text. How can I put this text into action? That's where we identify timeless truths, relate the timeless truths to today. Now we bring it into our world based on what it said in that world. And we practice the timeless truths. <laughs> so here's the deal. When we come to God's word to learn about spiritual warfare, first we need to listen to the text, then we need to grasp the context, and then, then we can start asking our questions. But we can't let our questions drive, drive from the beginning because if we're not careful, we'll start looking for all the answers that we want in scripture. Does that make sense? This is so dangerous, so, so dangerous, so subtly dangerous. And the danger is we can totally misuse the Bible in this way and we, are, we can think we're embracing truth when we're deceived the entire time. Is this not a glaring tactic of the adversary? To convince us that we're being biblical when we are taking scripture and twisting it to accommodate ourselves and to give us the answers that we want. Okay, fourth foundational truth, the enemy in the spiritual war is formidable. He's a lion looking for someone to devour. Lions prowl for one reason, they want to kill. And we need to realize that if our adversary was a man, if he possessed nothing but human strength, ingenuity, or cunning, craft, then we might consider defending ourselves with human strength. But he is not. In our flesh, we are no match for our foe. The reality is, if you were to face the devil on your own, you would be outsmarted and overpowered in less than a second. Let that soak in. If you were to face the devil on your own, you would be, you would be overpowered, outsmarted in less than a second. You have a formidable foe. Now some say, why even think about the enemy? Well, don't just focus on God and there's a grain of truth to that. But listen to 2 Corinthians chapter two, the end of this passage. In order that Satan might not outwit us for we are not unaware of his schemes. We need to open our eyes. If you're playing football, isn't it good to know the strategy of the other team? What they're going to be doing? If you're a quarterback on a football field, then Obviously, you don't want to just keep your eyes all the time fixed on where the, where the defensive backs are and the linebackers are. You'll never, never be able to connect with your receivers. you got to have your eyes fixed on your receivers, but you better know where those defensive backs and linebackers are going to be when the receivers come running across the field or else you're never going to complete a pass to them. We need to open our eyes. We need to get on our knees. This battle is spiritual, and as a result, it must be fought in spiritual ways prayer. We must know who he is and we must know how he works. We need to know who he is and how he works. We need to know that Satan has, I am convinced, two primary objectives. Number one is to destroy God's people. Satan wants to destroy God's people and ultimately to the end that he defames God's glory. He wants to defame God's glory. Spiritual warfare is ultimately a battle for glory. It's the end of Psalm 96. The scope of this spiritual war is universal. Fly through this one. It affects every language. Every language affected by this war. Every people, every nation, every tribe, every life. Every life in this room, every life on this 6.8 million member planet. Affected by spiritual, 6.8 billion member planet. This is a cosmic spiritual war. Which means that involvement in this spiritual war is inevitable. It's inevitable. We sometimes think that spiritual warfare and demonic activity is something that happens when something weird starts to go on. The reality is spiritual warfare is happening when you are sitting alone at your computer 
And when you pick up the remote on your TV, when you wake up in the morning and you turn to your spouse, and when you look in your child's eyes, when you walk to class, when you sit in your desk at work, spiritual warfare is happening. Not just in isolated weird times. The battle is continual, the battle is fierce, and spiritual retreat only leads to spiritual defeat. You cannot ignore this war, ladies and gentlemen. The Bible does not say ignore the devil and he will flee from you. You take that tactic, you will fall. You'll fall. Two more truths. The stakes in the spiritual war are eternal. Casualties in this war do not merely lose a limb or an eye or a life. Casualties in this war lose everything. And the stakes here are either an eternal heaven or an eternal hell. The God of this world wants people to be saved. Second Peter 3 9. He does not want anyone to perish. But the God of this world wants people to burn in hell in a lake of fire. And how we fight this battle has eternal implications for men, women, boys and girls in every nation, tribe, people, and language. Which leads to one last foundational truth. And this is the good part, the best foundational truth. The outcome of this spiritual war is irreversible. It's irreversible. Brothers and sisters, Satan has been defeated. This was prophesied at the very beginning of this war in Genesis chapter three. He will crush your head. It was fulfilled in Christ. I love Colossians 2.15. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Isn't that a good verse? Satan has been defeated and Satan will be destroyed. We know the end of the story. The devil was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur. This is what's going to happen where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is going to happen. Do you know what this means? This means that we do not fight this war for victory. We fight from victory. And there is a huge difference between the two. Let that truth soak in because if it's not clear in your mind, then you will struggle to experience victory in this life. If you are thinking, confused, defeated, trying to figure out how to live this Christian life, if you don't lodge this in your mind, then you will not find yourself on the front lines risking it all for the glory of his name. But when you know he's the victorious king, then you will risk it all. And you will stand firm against the devil's schemes. You will resist the devil and he will flee because you know you're fighting from victory. Memorize this verse, 1 John 4, 4. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. That's a fact. The spirit of Christ who dwells in you is greater than the one who is in the world. 
Everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that's overcome the world. Even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the son of God. Child of God, you have the victory. Satan is a defeated foe. Think about it this way. On the morning of April 9th, 1865, General Robert E. Lee met with General Ulysses S. Grant to sign an agreement marking the end of the U.S. Civil War. Morning of April 9th, the war had ended. Peace had been accomplished. But interestingly, just south of where we are tonight, from Montgomery to Mobile, the battle still raged. Even though the Civil War was technically over, the battle at Fort Blakely still took place. And the fighting was just as real. Soldiers were just as committed to destroying their foes. The guns and bayonets were just as devastating. And death was just as brutal. And the war had been decided, but the fighting was still going on. And the fighting was just as deadly as it has always been because peace had yet to be enforced to its ultimate end. I don't think this is a perfect picture, but it does capture a bit of the picture of where we find ourselves now. Brothers and sisters, the victory has been accomplished. Satan has been defeated. What continues to be at stake, though, is the lives of those who are still fighting. And in the same way that peace had yet to be enforced in lower Alabama, Jesus' victory has yet to be enforced completely in the world. One day he is going to come and enforce his victory finally and completely. And evil will be totally abolished. Yet now we find ourselves in the middle of guerrilla warfare and the strategy of the adversary is to prevent people from experiencing the pleasures of peace that have been accomplished for them. So we fight this battle, not ultimately for victory, but knowing that our victory has already been won. It's already been accomplished on your behalf, both now and for all of eternity. So with that kind of confidence, I, I think it's safe to say we're ready to fight. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources at Radical.net.